your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 18. I have the passage for you on the insert as well. Here we are. Abraham has been entertaining three heavenly guests. As it turns out, as the story unfolds, two are angels and one is God himself, apparently incarnate, some kind of personage, but it's God himself. These three have come to dine with Abraham and Sarah, they have multiple purposes. First was to encourage Sarah, who needed encouragement along the way, along this long journey. And there, God reassures her that she will, inside of a year, have the child that he has promised. Isaac will be there. But they have also come en route to visit Sodom, the wicked city and cities on the plains, Gomorrah and some other small towns. We're not talking about towns at this time in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but these are small city-states, a group of them, Sodom and Gomorrah and some cities in between near the Dead Sea. And the outcry about their wickedness had gone throughout the region. In light of Abraham's covenantal privileged status with God that we've seen unfold in this the whole episode in Genesis, but in this immediate time with God coming to sup with him and Sarah, we see the Lord revealing his plan to Abraham. What we have here unfolds. This is God and Abraham talking. This is Abraham appealing to God. Here as I read God's holy word, Genesis eighteen twenty through 33. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not. I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. 
and Abraham returned to his place. You know, what we have here is an amazing appeal from Abraham about Sodom and the inhabitants of that group of cities or towns. Yes, his nephew Lot's there, but he's praying on behalf of the whole of those cities. And remember, God is molding Abraham to be an agent of his righteousness and justice. And here we have a fruit of that sanctification by what Abraham prays, how he appeals to God. Please bow together with me in prayer. Oh Lord, we have come to a most serious part of this divinely inspired early historical record of humanity. Historians know that Sodom and the close-by towns of the ancient plains once existed, and then suddenly they did not. Here is the beginning of that record. Oh Lord, we are moved by the prayer of Abraham on behalf of Sodom, his appeal to you. He has compassion on the people of the plains, despite their rebellion against God. He knows his own sin as he comes to you on their behalf. He knows that it is only by the grace that he, by your grace that he is in living in covenant with you and not living against you in Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh Lord, may we learn something from this account about compassion for the lost, about your righteousness and your justice, and about godly intercession. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you haven't thought of this as a prayer before, but it's absolutely a prayer. Abraham standing before God and making an appeal. And we probably would not list this in the top ten prayers of the Bible. Abraham's prayer about Sodom. We think of those great prayers like the one that Hannah prayed when she knew that God was going to give her a child who would be a judge, who would be a prophet, would be a priest over Israel to appoint a king. And Hannah, this godly mother, says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. That's what we think of when we think of a monumental prayer in the Old Testament. How about David's prayers inspired by the Holy Spirit in the various Psalms? And when he says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, we all pray that today. It's woven into prayers that we pray. That's a prayer that we remember in the Old Testament. Probably not Abraham's prayer for Sodom. There's Solomon's great prayers when he's standing before the Lord recognizing that he is going to be given watch care of the whole nation of his chosen people. And he says to the Lord, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give to your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. What a prayer. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people, Solomon prays. That's a top prayer. Hezekiah was sick, almost going to die. And Sennacherib in Assyria coming with 180,000 troops to destroy Israel. And Hezekiah prays a great prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear. Open your eyes, Lord. See. Look at the words of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, which he sent to mock you, the living God. So now, O Lord, save us. Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth will watch that salvation and know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Now that's a better prayer than Abraham's prayer for Sodom, right? How about the magnificent prayer prayed by Mary when she realizes that the Lord has given her Jesus, that she will bear Jesus. And she says historically and memorably, repeatedly, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's a prayer worth repeating. And of course, the Lord, he gives us as the model prayer. We read it in the affirmation of faith from our catechism, what prayer is. And yes, we use the whole of the word of God to inform our prayers. But the Lord's prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Now that's a prayer for sure. Our Father who art in heaven. When we think of great prayers of the Bible, we probably do not think of Abraham's prayer for Sodom. Maybe you didn't think of it as a prayer at all until now. This prayer where he seems to, it's sort of like he's in another country. You ever go to try to buy something in another country? What it's labeled as isn't what it really is, so you haggle with them. That's kind of the fun of it. You know, they say it's 10 bucks, but you can get them down to 3 bucks, and you're haggling back. That's kind of how this ancient Near Eastern man, Abraham's talking to God. But he's praying to God. He's appealing to God. Other than the Lord's Prayer, I would submit to you, and you could challenge me on this, other than the Lord's Prayer where he says, when you pray, pray like this, I'd say of all the prayers we see, this might be the most applicable to our situation, most informative the way Abraham interacts with God. I think we have a model prayer here in what Abraham utters, but in particular, the way he approaches, the way this prayer unfolds. It's a natural response to the great grace God has shown him. He's in this privileged place, this covenantal place before God. Abraham's prayer for Sodom, of all places, is a beautiful example of godly intercession given for us in Scripture. It's a bold prayer. You'll see him boldly approach the throne of grace. It's a humble prayer. He knows who he's talking to. It's a Bible-based prayer. He's careful to be accurate about who he's talking to based on what God has revealed about himself. It's a compassionate prayer. He feels for the people, the righteous first and foremost, who may be in Sodom, but you'll see he's doubtful about how many there may be. So his prayer is for Sodom and the whole, maybe there's just any amount that would stay your hand, O Lord. There's a compassion he has for the lost. The occasion. The occasion is the pending visit of the angelic visitors who will leave Abraham's home to go to Sodom. Abraham knows what they will find when they get there. Word is widespread about Sodom. It's as bad as it could get. In fact, maybe only the time before the flood would be any worse than what was happening in the, city, the cities of the plains. Wickedness was growing rapidly in that place. And Abraham senses the purpose of the angels. He realized what they're about to do, what they're going to discover. And he's overwhelmed with his concern for the inhabitants there. And of course, his nephew Lot and family, they're there as well. He's burdened by what would befall the men and women of Sodom. He also understood the righteousness and justice of God and knows that God would be justified to do what seemed to be happening. By approaching God, Abraham wasn't telling God to change his will. He doesn't know the specifics of his will at this point, so he goes to God and makes an appeal. He's interceding for Lot and for Sodom in a model way. Derek Kidner, that great Old Testament commentator, said, it would be easy to say that this prayer comes near to haggling, but the right word is exploring. Abraham is feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith. And it's superbly expressed in, in verse 25 when he asks, will the God of the universe do what's just? He goes, moves forward in faith, and Kidner continues in humility. His whole mode of address and in love demonstrated in his concern for the whole city, not just for his kinsmen alone. Let's look at how this prayer is presented to God. First of all, it's a bold prayer. It's a bold move. 
and the boldness is on the basis of his covenantal status, the show of grace that God has made towards Abraham. Abraham knows he can stand in the presence of God because God has made it so. God has intervened on his behalf, and in that covenantal ceremony back in Genesis 17, God demonstrated by the splitting of the animals and the shedding of blood and him going through it on his own, that Abraham could know that God had made the way to him plain. He could go to God, and look what it says in verse 22. The men turned from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. That's a bold move, to stay in the presence of the Lord. He stood before the Lord. And not only that, it says in verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said. So there's a boldness of approach to God himself with this appeal that he is going to make. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Questioning what might be the plan of God. And he does so with a boldness because he knows he is God's child. And this is true for all of us. We can approach God because we are his adopted sons and daughters through Christ. Abraham believed in Christ. The gospel was preached to him beforehand, it says in Galatians 3. He understood the basis for his approach to God is God's intercession, God's intervention. So he can come with this boldness knowing that God would receive his, him into his presence. He stood before the Lord. He drew near to the Lord. He could stand there because of Christ's intercession for him. This is why we can stand before the Lord It's because of Jesus' intercession. You don't need me to intercede for you. You don't need someone else. You can go right into the throne room of grace with that boldness, knowing it's because of Christ. He was bold in his approach because God revealed that he was his favored child through what he would do in his choice of him and how he'd provide for him. Now, notice the boldness in his wording, in his approach. Verse 24, he says to God, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? This is a boldness he comes. It's on the basis of his knowing that God is right and just. It's God's character that makes him bold. That's what can make us bold. We'd be scared of that character on our own, but we come in Christ. Verse 25, he says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The boldness of Abraham to go before the living God and tell him or question what he might be about to do. He's wrestling with God from a position of privilege through grace. And the Lord answers him. Doesn't strike him down. Answers him. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now the Lord's talking to God. Will you? Far be it from you twice, he says. Abraham appeals on the basis of God's gracious character. He knew ultimately God would do what is right. Whatever God does would be right. But God has not given him the specifics of his will for this occasion, so Abraham, as his child, boldly goes to the throne. He thought what was best for the display of God's character and righteousness is to spare Sodom because of the righteous that might be there. Now, as it starts to fall out, we realize that you almost sense Abraham starting to wonder himself, maybe, you know, how many are. I know Lot's there. Lot, Lot should not have taken up residence that close. He's impacted by it, but he's still a believer in God. So Abraham's probably thinking as he's going and he's speaking. He wants to see the righteous spared, for sure. But he wants everybody to, to be spared. He doesn't want to see this, the whole of this humanity wiped out. He wants the ungodly to have more time to repent. 
He doesn't want God's character to be questioned when people view what has been done. He doesn't know how they'll view it. In his mind, they would not look well for him. So he expresses that to God. Abraham's whole intercession was based on the righteousness and justice of God. That's something God was teaching Abraham more and more. It's something of the spirit that Charles Wesley captured in his great hymn, And Can It Be? He says in the hymn, And can it be that I should gain, what? An interest in my Savior's blood. If I have an interest in my Savior's blood by God's ordaining, what does that mean for my talking to God? No condemnation, now I dread, Wesley says. Jesus and all in him is mine. So there's a boldness that comes from that place that you have, brothers and sisters, you have. And this is what makes Wesley say, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Now, Abraham doesn't know the specifics of God's will, but he knows his God. He knows the favor God has shown him. And so he goes to him with what he thinks, what he thinks is agreeable to his will, hoping that he'll stay his hand of judgment upon Sodom. Now, it's it's an application that we might draw from this that I think is helpful for us, especially when we get down about the way things are in the world in which we live. There only needs to be a small percentage of Christians for God's judgment to be stayed. We see that here. The presence of believers, that's a true salt and light, and it's an element of salt and light for a given culture, even if there's just a few. I like what Candlish says here. Let the light still shine. It may be that even Sodom, through the continued shining of the light, be it ever so faint and flickering, may yet ere long turn to the Lord. If there's just a little flickering, a few people, maybe there could be repentance that could come to that place. This is what Abraham no doubt hopes. This should motivate us, Christians, the church, to stay faithful in the midst of whatever culture we find ourselves in in part to be a preserving agent for this place in which we live. We don't want to see God's judgment come for those who are not ready. There's something else besides being a bold prayer. Notice it's a very humble prayer. You can come with boldness, but you must also come knowing your place. He comes humble based on knowing who he's approaching. He's bold, make no mistake, but he knows who he's talking to. Verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I know what the gravity of the situation is. I'm coming into your presence. I'm talking to the God of the universe, to Jehovah. I, who am but dust and ashes, I do know, Lord, who I'm talking to, who I am and who you are. He knows what he has done, and he's coming before the living God. He knows who he is in comparison to God. And each layer of appeal in this episode, in this prayer, though bold, shows a a humility and approach. Look at verse 30. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And the Lord responds, I will not do it if there are 30 there. So he, he gains more boldness, but he doesn't lose his humility along the way. He's still talking to God. Verse 31, he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I know what I'm doing here. This is is serious. But suppose 20 are found there. God answers, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. Just this one last time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
And Abraham did what? He went back to his place. He's humbly testing for the will of God. He doesn't know what the specific will of God is, so he presses and he presses. He does so boldly, he does so humbly. He would certainly be accepting of God's will, but he doesn't know what it is exactly for Sodom at this time. He doesn't know the specifics of it, nor do we often know the specifics of the prayers we pray, but we press on trying to be as in accord with God's will as we know it to be because God's word is often not explicit about judgment and salvation in particular about a given person or people. Whatever he decides, it would be right. So we're humble in our appeal. But barring him in telling us what it is, we go before him and wrestle to find what his will is. That's a large part of what prayer is. Prayer is not for you to wrestle with God to get him to do what you want. It's wrestle with God so you understand what he wants. That's the point of prayer. So he presses on with humility. I put in your, on your insert what we read earlier. And if you look there, I think that the Westminster Divines did a great job. Of course, they're using the whole of the Bible's teaching on prayer. But I think you can take the answer to what is prayer, question 98, and answer, and you can apply it to what Abraham does. And you'll see this is prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. He desires to see Sodom spared. It does not say explicitly in the Word of God that that's not his will. He doesn't know what his will is. So he, that's his desire. He offers up the salvation of Sodom. For things agreeable to his will. He doesn't know specifically what his will is here, so he presses for this. But he wants God's will. And if God's will is something different, Abraham will change. In the name of Christ, he comes boldly because God has given him this access ultimately through Christ. With confession of our sins, he says, I am but dust and ashes. I know who I am before you. And thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. You haven't struck me dead I'm talking to you again just one last time. You see it in what Abraham is saying as he comes to God. He's humbly offering his desires for Sodom, but he wants God's will. He just doesn't know what it is. You have something you're praying hard for. You know that the Bible doesn't say no to it, but it doesn't say what his will is, so you press. And then over time, the Lord may either grant that or he'll change your heart about that prayer. And prayer has had its effect. That's the way it's a means of God's grace. It actually doesn't move the hand of God, it changes your heart to be in line with God's will. That's why we pray. And God gives us access to him to do this, to have this interchange that you see here unfolding. It's different for us at this moment, but it's the same in many respects as well. I want you to notice something else. Not only is it bold and humble, it's a biblical prayer. What he's saying here is in accord with what God has revealed to Abraham about himself. That's what I mean by that. It's based on God's revelation about himself. When the elders prepare a prayer that they bring to you, they spend hours during the week to do several things. Think on the specific needs of the congregation and then how to appeal to God for them. And is this in accord with what God would say about these appeals? That's, it's important. If you're going to bring people into the presence of God corporately, you got to think out what you're saying because it needs to be in accord. Now, when you're praying, pray spontaneously, pray at the moment. Um, if you're new in the faith, don't, don't worry about the particulars of your theology. Just reach out to God. But over time, as you pray and as you read and as you study, your prayers will become more mature. They'll line up more with God's will, and they'll become more biblical in that sense and therefore much more effective. Effective for what? For doing what prayer sets out to do, which is align our hearts with God's will. 
That's what you see unfolding in Abraham's life to this point. This is not the same Abraham from Genesis 12, the one we're reading in 18, who's praying now. This is not the same Abraham from 15 or 17 for that matter. I want you to consider this a little more specifically. He's praying biblical, a biblical prayer. It's in accord with the kinds of things that God has thus far revealed. Earlier in the chapter, last week, we studied the passage where the Lord is speaking about what he's doing in Abraham's life. He chooses Abraham to teach him righteousness and justice. Of who? Of God. To then teach his children this. So Abraham's learning what this means. Now God is about to do this thing with Sodom. And so Abraham's thinking about the righteousness and the justice of God. And he out loud speaks it to God. Back in Genesis 18, the verses that precede this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I've shown this grace to him. He is my child. I have great plans for what he'll do. I should give him revelation about my will. So he gives him revelation. Verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So now Abraham's hearing what God may be doing with Sodom, and he goes to God about righteousness and justice. Is this right? Is what I'm hearing, what I think is going to happen, be right? That you would wipe out the whole of the cities on the plains, even though there might be 10 righteous people there? The episode shows Abraham wrestling with the revelation God's given and then brings it to him when he prays. This is a good model for us. When we pray, Pray, praise your heart, leads you to pray when something comes up. And then over time, as you continue to return to the prayer, go to the word as well. What does the word say about, so maybe the word has something explicit about the thing I'm praying for. Maybe it doesn't, so keep praying. Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's thinking of what God revealed about his righteousness and justice. Would this be right and just, O Lord? And I know that you, the, the judge of the universe, will do what's right. Far be it from you to do such a thing as to wipe out even the righteous in this situation. It doesn't seem like that comports with your revealed will. You see how Abraham is appealing to God on the basis of the righteousness and justice that has been revealed. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You are righteous and just, O Lord. It seems to me that wiping out Sodom when there are some of your covenant people there, even if only a few, that that would be a violation of your righteousness. Would it not be? And brothers and sisters, this is important. At the beginning of the answer to that question we read earlier, it's very important. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. So we search his word for that. If we don't know for sure what his will is, because it's not been revealed in his word that way, we pray with a desire to know God's will and accept God's will because his will is right. And this is what Abraham is doing. He's trying to be biblical about God when he prays. We should not pray for things that we know God's word opposes. If we don't know if God's word opposes it, we search. As far as Abraham is concerned, based on his limited perspective, wiping out Sodom, even with ten righteous people, would be a statement against his righteousness. He doesn't want the nations to see that of his God. Well, it's bold for sure what he's praying for. It's, it's a humble demeanor he brings, and he's working to be very careful to be biblical in accord with what God's revealed. And then finally, I want you to see the compassion, the compassion that Abraham has. This may be the part that gripped me the most on a practical level. For me personally, especially in the last couple of years, whenever I see something happening in the public sphere, in the wider culture, I, I find myself getting angry about the kind of in-your-face 
cultural things that are happening to Christians. And it, it does, sometimes I admit that I struggle with the compassion I should have, that I should rightly have, given the sinner I am. But I think it would be great if the Lord would judge that kind of wickedness if we're going to systematize this kind of killing of the unborn or fill in this or fill in that or this kind of wreck God's view of what marriage is, uh, what relationships are like, how we should treat each other. If we're going to make this institutionalized and brag about it all over the internet, maybe sulfur and brimstone should come down. And I come to a passage like this and wait. I should absolutely be in the midst of the reception of that sulfur and brimstone for the sinner I am. It's only because God has opened my eyes to that sin and my need for Christ that makes me any different. It's all Him. It's nothing I've discovered on my own. And this is what you have, I think, at the heart of Abraham's appeal to God. His concern is not just for Lot. It's for the several towns filled with people who are about to perish and enter eternity as enemies of God. Verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down there to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come. Obviously, God knows what's happening there. He's doing this to express his righteousness and his judgment, not only to Abraham so that we can look at it and analyze it these many years later and appreciate who God is, what he's done for us, what he's spared us from. Verse 22 They turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. It it registered with him the the gravity of this. They're going to go down there, and I know what they're going to find. And he'd be right if he wiped them out. He knows it. But please, Lord, don't do that. There's some righteous there. There's some people there that that you love. I want to appeal on that basis. Because I know that the unrighteous, it would be right for you to wipe them out. But there's some of the righteous there. So for their sake... Spare Sodom. That's what he's praying. That's what he desires. He doesn't want to see people enter into eternity as God's enemies. He knows what that means. He's sure of it. He believes what God's word says. He drew near and said, "Will you indeed still sweep away the or sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's fifty righteous." He just. I think he just says this. This is a spirit moving, of course. But this is his first number, right? And he's maybe he's starting to think to himself, "Well, I don't really don't know if there is that many at all. I know lots there. I, I know his family pretty much loves it there." It's not a great, this isn't a good situation, he knows it. So he's working himself down to 10. Maybe, okay, 10, there's got to be 10, right? Wrong. But this is Abraham, the sinner saved by God's grace. He understood he did nothing to merit God's favor. Why should Abraham be spared judgment? He must be thinking. It's only because of God's grace. Abraham didn't look at Sodom and the cities of the plains and think that they were more deserving of punishment than him. He has compassion on them because he knows what is coming for them. He puts himself at risk before the living God in order to make an appeal on their behalf. It reminds me of what Paul utters. It always always stuns me when I read it because I know that he's using a hyperbole when he speaks. But the apostle is so tore up that his people won't accept Jesus. The Jewish people won't accept Jesus. And he says some of the most amazing things in all the book of Romans, a very technical book, yet he says something very emotional. In Romans 9, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. My brothers, my kinsmen, hundreds of them, thousands of them, turning away from Christ. If I could give my soul to the, and have it be a curse so they would all come to Christ, I'd do it. Abraham says to God, please, Lord, for the sake of just a few righteous, spare Sodom. And you know, we Christians are in a unique place for this world. We could be mad at the culture and the world and where it's gone, and it's understandable. There's things that should anger us about it. But we are in the unique position to stand before God and ask him to spare it. They can't ask for it, and if they cry out, God doesn't hear them, unless they cry out for Christ. So we have to. We need to go before God for those who are lost, those we love, those we know, those we don't know, and ask God to spare them. Spare them. Give them regeneration. Give them repentance for their sins. Have them turn to Christ like he did for you, like he did for me. We have access to God, so we should avail ourselves of this access for others and not just ourselves. Abraham's prayer for Sodom is a beautiful example of godly intercession for us Christians today, for the church. When you think of the lost around us, do we appeal to God on their behalf regularly enough? For your loved ones who have thus far rejected Christ, for your co-workers who do not know Jesus, when we look upon this country of ours which slouches ever more towards Sodom, do we appeal to God for his mercy? Certainly a country like ours deserves God's judgment. But what about the righteous who are here? What about God's character? Why should any of us escape God's just wrath? Do we pray with boldness, with a humility, with a compassion for the lost, that God would save the lost who we are living amongst? We should pray like Abraham. You know, when we read the great prayers of the Bible, we can take elements of what's prayed and relate with it and pray it, but we're not like King David or King Solomon or Hezekiah as such in the specific occasions. We're not like those mothers, Hannah and Mary, as such. But all of us, all of us can certainly relate with Abraham when he prays for Sodom. So now I would like to lead us before the throne of grace for the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, while less profoundly, no doubt, as we finish studying this passage, I would like to lead us in undertaking to approach you, O Lord, knowing that we are dust and ashes. We come to you by way of your covenant of grace, fulfilled through Christ's blood on our behalf. We come as your sons and daughters through the adoption granted to us through Christ. Like Abraham, we come as your friends through Jesus' blood. We draw near to you now in order to make an appeal on behalf of the lost, who at this point, if Christ should return, if you would send some calamity, or they would die of natural causes, they would be separated from you and your love for eternity, and this terrifies us for them. We confess that you would be justified in your judgment of the ungodly. We could offer no argument against your justice. We would not complain against your fairness. You are God and we are but dust. But nevertheless, like Abraham, we appeal to your mercy and your grace, O Lord. Please extend your patience with those who stand in rebellion against you this moment. They have been blinded by the devil. They have no clear view of you. Their minds have been warped by the spirit of the age, and they are full of themselves and their supposed wisdom. Behold, somewhat like Abraham, we have now undertaken in this petition before you to speak to you, O Lord. As Abraham said to you, so I repeat, O let not 
the Lord be angry and we will speak. We have loved ones who do not know Christ. They are living in spiritual blindness and corruption. We have friends and family members who are moving through this life, oblivious to the riches of Jesus and the glory of worshiping you. They are worshiping themselves on the way to sure damnation. Outwardly, they appear content and happy, but inwardly, they are in disarray. They lack peace. They are full of turmoil, and they're lonely. O Lord, may you give them new life in Christ the way you have given it to us. Lord, may your name be glorified and made famous by saving our lost loved ones from their sin and your right judgment. O Lord, many in our church have children who were raised to know and love you. They may be sitting with us, but they do not confess you as Lord. They have made an alliance with this world And this breaks our hearts. We know where this leads. We fear for their fate. We long for them to cry out to you in dependence. O Lord, spare them the judgment they deserve for their unbelief by removing the scales from their eyes that they might see their sin and run to Christ. Lord, do not give them what they deserve, but rather in your mercy, by the work of your Holy Spirit, regenerate them unto union with Jesus Christ for eternity. O Lord, we are humbled before you. You are the sovereign one. You can do whatever you want to do, and whatever you want to do is right. And we will praise you for your judgment of sinners as well as for your redemption of sinners. But you have not given us a final verdict on our lost loved ones, our friends, and our neighbors, who do not as of yet depend on Christ. So we appeal to you with all of our hearts, please, O Lord, save them. Bring them to yourself as you have done for us. We no more deserve salvation than anyone else on this earth. We ask you to do the same for our friends, our co-workers, our children, our family members, and loved ones, those who are lost and on the road to judgment and damnation, separation from you and your love and your mercy. Please, O Lord, with all humility, we appeal to your loving kindness through Jesus Christ to pluck them from the edge of the eternal abyss and save them. O Lord, in the spirit of Abraham, as he prayed to you for Sodom and its inhabitants, do not be angry, and we will speak again but just this once. In this time, I pray for America. We are a nation in undeniable rebellion against you. But you have placed your people here. You have established your church throughout this land in all our imperfections. O Lord, please send revival to your people first. Make us to be the salt and the light that Jesus said we are to be where we have been complicit in this country's slide into godlessness, rebellion, and wickedness. Forgive us, O Lord. Grant us true repentance. Lord, we live in godless days in America. Our sins are too many to list. We murder the unborn, people created in your image. We do so so that we can act out on our sexual passions and desires. We do violence to each other by how we use each other for our own godless pleasures and then insist on freedom to kill the offspring of these unions so that we can maintain our liberty to keep doing more of the same wicked things. God, have patience with us. Men use women and children. Women manipulate men and children. Children act out in unruly rebellion. Our national sins are many, O Lord, but your gracious loving kindness is so great. Please, O Lord, for the sake of the people whom you love, your church in this country, give us effectiveness in evangelism so that through our witness of Christ, 
the lost in this country would be found. By the proclamation of your gospel and the godly devotion of your church, draw our countrymen and our countrywomen to our Savior so that he would become their Savior and Lord too. Humble your church and give us your spirit so that we might pray to you and that you might bring salvation and healing to our sick country that is spiraling downward. Only you can stop this free fall of country and culture. Lord, we live in days of rebellion and you would be justified in bringing swift judgment upon America. O Lord, with humility and knowledge of our participation at some level of our country's idolatry and worship of self, we ask for you to spare us from the oppression of other nations. Though we deserve discipline, please have mercy upon us and our children and our grandchildren. Please stay your hand against any number of the judgments that you would be right to send upon us. Please, O Lord, grant your church a voice that is heeded and an impact that brings widespread repentance and faith to these United States. Stop us from our feverish pursuit of self and stuff. Stop us from our destructive gluttony and infatuation with mind-altering substances. Stop us from our sensual anarchy. Clear up the mass confusion of the age with regard to your created order for men, for women, for children, for marriage, for sexuality, for human life. Grant us compassion for the downcast and the poor, healing for the sick, provision for the hungry, guidance for those who lack understanding, wisdom for the foolish, self-control for those who lack it and are enslaved, kindness for those who are mean and angry. Lord, if you rain sulfur and brimstone upon America, not a one of us could say that you would be unjustified in doing so. Maybe you should. But, O oh Lord, humbly and with trepidation and through the shed blood of Christ, would it not be more glorious for your name if you would grant your gospel such power and success that all the men and women and children of this country would throw themselves down before you. They would lay their crowns of self-worship at your feet, fall down and worship you. And this will happen, O Lord, if you will it to be so. It is our desire that this would be so. Yes, you would be right to cast all of us to hell. But you have not done that. You have saved a people for yourself. You have scattered us among our countrymen. Now, O Lord, if it would please you, If you would be so merciful, use the people who you have saved for yourself, indeed use us, to boldly declare the forgiveness of sins for all who turn to Christ and believe. Not on a small scale, but on a full scale. Sweep through this nation with your gospel and bring salvation to the lost and rebellious. Lord, as it stands, if you ended things today, a great many people would die apart from you, condemned to eternal destruction. Whatever you do is right, we'll praise you for it. But, O Lord, if it pleases you, will you please continue your patience for the sake of our lost friends, family members, countrymen? O Lord, I've not even begun to pray for the lost of the world beyond our national borders and our burdens for them too. O Lord, you have placed far more than 50 righteous people in America. Despite the backsliding of your church on the whole, you have thousands, if not millions, of your adopted children well-positioned over this land. Awaken every one of us to speak for Christ in the mercy that can be found in him. Give us changed lives that authenticate the message that we preach. Will you then sweep away this country and not spare it, O Lord? There are so many who trust in you. They love you. We love you. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
Instead, O Lord, grant your people reformation and revival. Grant your people conviction and clarity about the gospel of your grace through Christ. Please, O Lord, empower the true church of Jesus Christ to gain a resounding voice in America so that the whole of our people will turn to Christ and believe on him. What more powerful testimony to your greatness and grace could there possibly be than sending a revival through your church that leads to the conversion of the masses of the people in this country? Greater than mass judgment, in our view, would be mass transference of men, women, and children from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Please, O Lord, bring glory to your name through the salvation of 300 million sinners through Christ. If you send judgment, your people will praise you. We're just asking, with all humility, to instead, if it be your will, to send us an unstoppable, saving movement of your Holy Spirit to make the masses alive together with Christ. All for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Let's respond by turning to 393. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse